You may recall that Isaiah 24 through 27 makes up the little apocalypse. And I remind you again that the word apocalypse doesn't mean explosion. doesn't mean end of the world. What apocalypse literally means, apocalypsis in the Greek, it means unveiling. This is the little unveiling. The book of Revelation would be the big unveiling. But remember when you think about this, that the revelation is first and foremost and primarily of Jesus Christ. Whether it's the book of Revelation, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first verse of Revelation. Or the little apocalypse here, it is about Jesus. It is a focus on Jesus. Isaiah, yes, I realize he was a Jewish prophet. I realize seven centuries before Jesus walked the earth, Isaiah spoke these things and wrote these things. I understand this. It is all about Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 says, Their minds were hardened. Speaking of the Jewish people. Paul saying this. Paul being a Jew. You know how you can talk about people if you're one of them? Okay? So Paul is talking about his own. And he's saying their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, and that's referring to Torah, that's referring to the Hebrew Scriptures, oftentimes the New Testament writers will say Moses, whenever Moses is read, and and what they're saying is the Old Testament, as, as we call it, the Hebrew Scriptures. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You know, I wonder if if that applies to us. I really wonder if so often the reason why people don't understand, why I in the past have not understood the Hebrew Scriptures, is because I tried to go to them without turning to the Lord. I tried to go to them without seeking Jesus in the pages. That may be a different application. I don't know, but the veil is removed in Christ. So when you go looking for Jesus, the veil is taken away. And understand, as we study this this prophecy of Isaiah, this marvelous book, the removal of the veil doesn't reveal an eschatological position. That's not what we're looking for here. We're not looking for a doctrinal paradigm, you know, or a theological perspective. That's, That's not what the removal of the veil means. The removal of the veil by faith in Jesus reveals God. Reveals who Jesus is. That's, again, the revelation. It's the revelation of who He is. And what's great about this is the more He is revealed to us, the more we are changed. I find that's true in my marriage. The more I understand and know Cheryl, the more it changes me. And vice versa. Knowing someone alters you in your relationship with them, in the way you react and respond to them, in the same way, but in a far, far more important level. The more I know the Lord Jesus, the more I am changed by the revelation of Him. And so we seek Him in these pages. Always, always, always seeking Him. So that as in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we're told, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now this little apocalypse, we have Isaiah literally transported to the end days, the last days, the last of the last days. But though he's there, and though he's telling us things that are yet future and revealing things to us that are to come, 
Again, the point of the prophecy is to unveil more of the nature and the character of God. And the more we understand and see His nature and His character, the more we are changed, the more we are like Him. Chapter 24, we already looked at last week. It's Isaiah's prophecy of world judgment. Sunday, we talked about the fact that that world judgment is interrupted by songs in the dark. Songs being sung in the midst of of tribulation and hardship and turmoil on the earth. Suddenly, praise is being offered up because the people see Christ coming. And when I look for Jesus coming, I can sing songs in the dark. It doesn't matter how difficult my life gets. If I'm looking to the coming of Jesus, I can sing. When I forget about Jesus and get caught up in the things of life, my songs tend to go quiet. But look for Jesus and you will sing songs in the dark. Chapters 25 and 26 now marvelously are singing. They're songs. Both of these chapters. The the tribulation is over. Christ has established or is establishing His rule and reign as the singing takes place in these next two chapters. So Isaiah is transported to that place. He is recording for us songs that the people at the entrance, at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom are singing. Which is pretty awesome. And finally, chapter 27, which we will not get to tonight, gives a detailed account of the restoration of the land of Israel. I know I, I, maybe I'm beating a dead horse on this thing, and I know I talk about this a lot. But why would God go to so much trouble to talk about Israel, reveal what He's going to do for Israel, record songs of the remnant of Israel singing, and then talk about the restoration of the land of Israel if He is through with Israel? I mean, really. Replacement theology, you might as well just throw out the entire Old Testament. There's no place for it. If it's been replaced... Maybe I'm just a little hot on that the last few weeks because of this Christ in the, at the checkpoint conference going on and it just bugs me. It just bugs me. But alright, it's okay. We all get bugged about some stuff. Now as we study the little apocalypse, remember this verse. Keep this in the back of your mind. In fact, anytime you study Bible prophecy, this is the key verse. Revelation 19, verse 10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, the Bible couldn't say it any clearer. That's the key. The Lord gives us the key that unlocks all of Bible prophecy. It's the testimony of Jesus. It always points us somehow to Jesus Christ. So we look for Him. Verse 1, chapter 25. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will give thanks to Your name. For You have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. I want to tell you some things about God. In this first song, several things that you'll see about the character, the nature of God. And the first thing to note is that God is a worker of wonders. (laughs) He's a worker of wonders. We talked about on Sunday the power of His Spirit. I don't know how that's sitting with all of you, but I'll tell you one thing. As a result of Sunday, we had... I don't even know what the numbers are. I won't worry about the numbers. We had a few people that came forward to receive uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have at least four, by this coming Sunday, baptisms that will take place this week. Water baptisms. We had at least two first-time decisions for Christ. That was all on Sunday. Sunday was humming in the barn. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Now, you know what? Praise the Lord. Okay. God is a worker of wonders. It's what He does. And if we're going to walk 
with the Lord, we should walk expecting wonders. It's who He is. God is a worker of wonders. Now Isaiah, who no doubt knew Torah well, is pinging off of some other verses. They're from verse 1. He's pinging off of Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Psalm 77, 14. You are a God who works wonders. You've made known your strength among the peoples. He's a wonder-working God. But the wonderful work that Isaiah is referring to specifically here in verse 1 is prophecy. He's calling prophecy a wonderful work. The Hebrew word merachok, which is fun to say, literally means counsels from afar. The Hebrew word, you see it there where it says plans formed long ago. That's one word, merachok. Plans formed long ago. Counsels from afar. Isaiah is saying, this is proof positive that you are a wonder-working God. Merachok. In a parallel verse, the Lord declares, Isaiah 37, 26, Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I've brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. I planned it then. I'm doing it now. God is a God who works wonders. Kyle and Delich write that it is the manifold counsel of the Holy One of Israel which displays its wonders in the events of time. And I was reading this and thinking about prophecy again and and the fact that we're in this book of prophecy and I wonder, do do you ever take Bible prophecy for granted? Do you ever just kind of get used to it? Oh yeah, more prophecy tonight. Here we go. Open up Isaiah. Going to get some more prophecy. Prophecy is amazing. I mean, prophecy is wonderful. Prophecy shouldn't happen. It can only happen if it's brought by a being who is outside of time. It's the only way it can do it. Otherwise, it's not prophecy. It's it's predictions. It's guessing. You know, it's forecasting. This is not forecasting. Prophecy is a marvelous thing. And, and it's what Isaiah is saying here in this song. Actually, the people of God singing. Isaiah is just recording what he's hearing. You've worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. The manifold, manifold counsel displayed in time that Kyle and Delich talk about expresses to us the perfect faithfulness of God. That's why prophecy's there. To show us God is faithful to His Word. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God is a worker of wonders. But in addition to that, God is a wall of defense. He's a wall of defense. I like this. Verse 2. For you have made a city into a heap. Remember this is singing here. A fortified city into a ruin. I don't know the tune. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. Now in the context, or because of the context of this song, the heap never to be rebuilt that he's talking about, that they're singing about, is probably Babylon. But not ancient Babylon. New Babylon. The Babylon built and set up as the capital city, I believe, of Antichrist during the tribulation. And at this time, in the singing of this song, Babylon has fallen, it's taken out, it's devastated, it's destroyed, and the people see it as a ruinous heap. 
And so they're singing praises to God because there's going to be a time there in that tribulation period where it's not going to look good. Where Babylon looks mighty. And this world ruler looks powerful. And things are not going well. But when Jesus steps in and the kingdom begins, it's just going to be all praise and glory. This fortified city is now a ruinous heap. Verse 4 going on says, You have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, or a rainstorm against a wall. Now I want you to notice something here that's interesting. God is a wall of defense. He is like a mighty wall that stands against all those who would oppress the people of God. But note this, the enemies of God, the word that Isaiah chooses to use here three times, or the people singing use three times, is the word ruthless. Okay, Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. Each one of those verses contains this word talking about the enemies of the people of God, those who are ruthless. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew that has modern day application. The word is aritz, and it is literally those who strike terror. We would call them terrorists. The word for ruthless, if we we're just going to translate it directly into English, truly would be terrorists. Terrorists. You have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath or the spirit of the terrorists is like a rainstorm against a wall. Huh. A rainstorm against a wall. Modern Israel, as you know, is a country very familiar with terrorism. They know how to deal with it. They've been dealing with it for over 60 years. Since day one of Israel becoming a nation, terrorism has been an issue. In fact, prior to that several years, terrorism was an issue in the land. It has continued to be an issue. They know how to deal with and handle terrorism like no people on the planet because it's the only way they can survive as a people. From 2003 to 2006... 1,100 Israeli citizens were murdered by homicide bombers. 1,100 in three years. As bomb attacks came into Israel, most of those attacks, do you know where they mostly came from? Any guesses? Bethlehem. They came out of Bethlehem. Palestinians living in Bethlehem. Not all of them. And and understand when I talk about Palestinians and, and Israelis, there are Palestinians who love Jesus. And they're Palestinians who are oppressed by their own leadership. So I'm not, I don't want to make you know, blanket statements. But the reality is it was coming out of Bethlehem. And so you know what Israel did in response? They built a wall. They built what the Israelis call a security fence, but what opponents of Israel call the New Berlin Wall. Now most of this wall that they built, well first of all, all of this wall was not built to keep people in like the Berlin Wall was. It was built to keep terror out. It was built as a sense of protection. But what a lot of people don't realize about this wall when it's brought up in the news as an anti-Israeli propaganda is that most of the wall, so-called, is a chain-link fence. 97% of the security fence is chain-link. It runs between the West Bank, so-called, and and Israel proper. And most, 97% chain-link. 3% is concrete. Now that 3% is big. It's 28 feet high. It is big concrete. It is thick. It is not passable. 
But they built it this way, and a lot of people don't know this. In fact, if, if you're at, in Israel the next, when we go there in the next couple of weeks here, uh, you will have a chance to see the security fence, the wall. You will look at it and you'll go, wow, that is a big, that is a big wall. Between Bethlehem and, and Israel, the, or the internal part. And that wall is big. It's 28 feet high. It's got graffiti written on it. Lots of graffiti. In fact, you get on the other side of it, onto the Bethlehem side of it, and it's, it's got all kinds of you know, Nazi symbols and all kinds of things like that. But this wall was built 28 feet high for a purpose. It was built that way to thwart sniper fire, which used to rain down from buildings in Bethlehem on people, civilians, who were driving on the cross-Israel Highway 6. People driving to and from work, moms going to pick up their kids, just people driving had to risk, every time that highway was taken, had to risk sniper fire. And that's something you don't even, didn't even hear about in the news. We heard about the suicide attacks, the homicide bombings. We didn't hear about the sniper fire that was going on constantly. Bullet holes in cars. And so the Israelis said, how do we keep our people safe? What do we do? So they built the wall. Groups like Christ at the checkpoint use this as anti-Israeli propaganda. They lack the facts. 3% concrete. But, but again, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm using this wall as a picture. A picture of security. The government of Israel, the Knesset, got together and they said, we've got to protect our people. How are we going to do it? What's, what we're doing right now is not working. Profiling doesn't work. Having you know, guards everywhere is not working. We need something that's going to hold back terrorism. And even one of the lead terrorists in, and I believe it's the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, inside Bethlehem, said a couple of years after the wall was built that the wall's a real problem for us getting in there. It's working. By the way, since the wall went up, 98% of terrorism stopped. 98%. That's huge. These walls have been built as temporary measures to hold back the rainstorm of terror that is so vicious, pounding against the wall. With that in mind, the spirit of the terrorists is like a storm against the wall? The breath of the ruthless was like a storm against the wall. Who's singing this? Those who would have uh, immediate memory of what that was like? Well, wait a minute. Rick, are you, are you saying that, that, that this wall is, that that's talking about this wall? I don't know. Could be. I'm not going to say for sure. I just think the wording is fascinating. Just found this out. In fact, Tim uh, tipped me off to this. In November of 2010, Israel began construction on a new part of the security fence, now running from a lot down in southern Israel, the tip of the Red Sea running all along the Israeli-Egyptian border up to Gaza. So now they're extending the wall up that way as well. And I think what we need to do is America needs to hire the Israelis to come over and... No, I'm... (laughs) The security fence. What's the point of talking about the security fence? Well, you know, here's the deal. The security fence, I fear, is giving nothing but a false sense of security. Now, I'm not opposed to it, and I think Israel has a right to defend itself, and I support that right, and I don't have an issue personally with the wall, and if I did, it wouldn't really matter because they don't care what I think. But but ultimately, it's the wrong wall. The wall that Israel needs is God. He is the wall of defense. And they will sing that. The remnant of Israel, looking back, will sing, You have been a wall of defense for us. You're the one. You are the defense for the helpless, verse 4. The defense for the needy. The refuge from the storm. The shade from the heat. The breath of the ruthless is like rainstorm against a wall. A rainstorm against a wall doesn't do a whole lot. You know, it pitter-pats. 
And when God is the wall of defense, ain't nothing can get you. That's a good thing to remember. Keep your finger here and go over to Ezekiel 38. Let me show you why I think this is a false sense of security. Something's going to happen. Something specifically in Israel connected to this, I think, this wall. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 10. This is a prophecy about Gog and Magog. If you've heard about Gog and Magog, there's actually a prophecy teaching on, uh, I think it's 35 through 38, that's that's, uh, on the website that you can listen to if you want to get into this and study it. Gog is a world leader's name. Magog is the country that the world leader is the the, uh, prime minister or the leader of. So Gog and Magog is the leader and the country. And... uh, it's very likely that Magog is Russia, and I still think that it is because of the names given here. But you get down to about verse 10. In this prophecy, the Lord is speaking to Gog, to Magog, about their threat of invasion to Israel. And in verse 10 it says, Thus says the Lord God, It will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil plan. Watch this. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. So what does that mean with the security fence? Well, I think a couple of possibilities. One, either something will happen politically whereby Israel takes down the wall completely just because there's no more threat. I don't really see that happening, but... There could be something worked out politically, internationally, where they say, okay, we'll take down the wall as long as we can be at peace, and they have a false sense of peace. Or, or because of the wall, everything in Israel inside of that wall is wide open because they feel so safe because of the wall. You understand what I'm saying? So either way, the wall is a false sense of security. Either way, the wall is not going to save Israel. But going on in Ezekiel, he says... You put this thought in your mind to go against the land of unwalled villages. Verse 12, to capture spoil, to cease plunder. To turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. See, that's God's perspective of Israel and Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. That's the center of the world, according to the Lord. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to capture great spoil? Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people of Israel are living securely, will you not know? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, and many peoples with you, and all of them riding on horses, a great assembly, and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land, and it shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Thus says the Lord God, Are you the one whom I spoke of whom I spoke in the former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them. It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord, that my fury will mount up in my anger. 
In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse. And every wall will fall to the ground. Perhaps that's when the security wall goes down. I don't know. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Gang, that Gog-Magog invasion... Supernatural intervention. And the world, Ezekiel tells us, will know. This is, this is coming. I don't know if we'll see it. There's all kinds of discussion about are we going to be raptured before the Gog Magog or will that happen right after the church? I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. It's going to be very close, I think. But when this happens, it will be the most supernaturally intervening moment since since Israel was first in the land, really since God led the people out of Egypt. The world will not have experienced God intervening in such a way. And when He does, the whole world will go, there's a God. And it's the God of Israel. And He's the one. And He will be magnified in it. I I read that. I, I could just sit there in Ezekiel 38 for about two hours. We won't. But I read that to remind you that God will show Himself to be Israel's wall of defense. Israel will be in a place where they're, they think they're at peace, they think they're safe, and suddenly here comes this onslaught, this massive northern onslaught coming down to destroy. And there will be a moment of terror that will go across the land, and then God will stand and be a wall of defense for the people of Israel. And that's what they're singing about here. They're singing about the wall. They're singing about God coming to their their defense, saving them. He will show Himself so powerful in that tribulation period that by the end of it, when the kingdom begins, those of Israel, the remnant of Israel, will just say, our God saved us. We are only here because our God saved us. Let me simplify this. Is He your defense? Or are you your defense? When someone comes up against you in the workplace, do you defend yourself immediately? Are you a defensive person? Don't raise your hand. Do you find yourself getting your back up easily when someone says a word against you? Listen, the Lord is a wall of defense. And He taught me this early on. In fact, eight years ago at the bridge when we first started, He taught me this. And I've shared before, there were some things said about me when we started this church. Whenever you try and start something new, people are going to talk. And there were some things said about me, and God just kept taking me back to Genesis 15. Over and over and over, Genesis 15. Where the Lord says, I am your shield, and your very great reward. And I go, okay, Lord, then shield me here, because I don't like this. <laughs> Be my wall of defense. Well, God is. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. He does not leave you to hang in there and figure it out for yourself. He wants to be your defender. He wants to stand for you. He's a wall of defense. Our only defense, truly, our refuge from the storm. 
And the wall of Isaiah's description back there in 25, it's a picture of the Lord in the actual apocalypse, and it will become absolutely clear. In fact, Joel 3.16 tells us, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. God is a wall of defense. God is also going on a welcoming host. Verse 6, chapter 25. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. I kind of like that he's called the Lord of hosts. Now, I know the word means army, but doesn't it make sense that the Lord of hosts is going to host a banquet? Okay, So that's what he's going to do. Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. This is this mountain here is Mount Zion. It's in Jerusalem. Isaiah speaks directly of a joyful celebration. And I believe this is the party that kicks off the kingdom. This is the celebration. This is the one Jesus is waiting for. This is the one that's just going to be this massive, joyful celebration. And I like the King James translation of it even better. Verse 6 in the King James reads, In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all peoples a feast of fat things. I like that. (laughs) A feast of fat things. A feast of, you know, (coughs) fat things. All the stuff that when you go into the restaurant, you look on them and you go, I really want to, I should order that. I want to order that. You know? Feast of fat things. A feast of wines on the lees. Of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. If we didn't have to worry about cholesterol or anything else, this is the kind of meal we want. You know, I mean, just sink your teeth into it. The ancient rabbis refer to this verse and this feast, they refer to this often. In fact, in a lot of the ancient rabbinical writings, they refer to when they talk about the messianic age or the coming of Messiah, they refer to this feast that he's going to provide. And we know who the host is. The host is Jesus Himself. He said on that night of His betrayal, Matthew 26, 27, He took a cup and He gave thanks and He gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you. This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. If there was ever a great reason... If any of you drink at all, if there was ever a great reason to stop, that's it. Think about this. I'm not going to drink until I drink with Jesus. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be a big drunken party. But Jesus says, I'm setting aside wine. I'm setting aside the joy of celebration. All the, I'm just going to set it aside. Because I want to wait. And I want the first sip of joyful wine to be with my people in the new kingdom. And that to me is motivation. I see that and go, okay, I'll wait. I'm going to set aside, I'm going to wait with Jesus so that the next sip of wine I have on my lips will be at the beginning of the kingdom. What a marvelous thought. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, and I've shared this with you before, this is one of the most mind-blowing things I think Jesus ever said. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Wow. 
I know I've shared this verse before, and I always have the same reaction. To be sitting at the table and Jesus saying, no, 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 Brian, sit down, sit down. Just stay right there. Irene, don't let Brian get up. I'm going to serve you guys. You're fine, you know? Stay seated. Shelly, don't move. Just stay right where you are. And Jesus comes around and begins to pour out and begins to serve. We're going, Lord, we should be serving you. No, no, let me do this. I've been looking forward to this, you know, 2,000 years. Let me do this. God is a welcoming host. Verse 7. And on this mountain, He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. Even the veil. Remember the veil we started out talking about? We, even the veil which is stretched or woven over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Number four, if you're, if you're tracking these things. Have we got done four of these yet? Yeah, I got yeah. Okay, number four. God has a wide appetite. Okay, what did we say? That He is a worker of wonders. That He is a welcoming host. That He is a wall of defense. God also has a wide appetite. And I mean no disrespect at all toward the Lord with this. But listen to what it says. There are two things that He swallows up here. The first thing in verse 7, He swallows up ignorance. I like that. On this mountain He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil that is stretched over all nations. And we know from what Paul said, even at the reading of the Lord, uh, reading of, of Moses, a veil lies over their heart. They don't get it. They're ignorant to the truth. And God at this time is going to swallow up ignorance. Who are the people most likely to be called ignorant in our country today? Christians. Glenn's pointing to himself, and I was going to agree. Yes, Glenn. <laughs> Christians are. Rick Santorum, Republican presidential candidate, is taking all kinds of fire this week because he mentioned Satan in a, in a talk that he gave three years ago at an Ave Maria Catholic school. Oh, no, he believes in Satan. Boy, somebody in the White House better. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, I, really, if you don't believe that there's a Satan and that there's evil in this world, what are you doing? You know, you're not you're not standing for anything, and so he takes these stands. And I'm not I'm not pro Santorum. I'm not saying that. But here's this guy who just mentioned Satan in a talk based on faith, and he's being called ignorant. Wow, how upside down! The Bible makes it absolutely clear what true ignorance is. Ephesians chapter four verse eighteen: being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way. What do you mean, Paul? I mean, when you came to Christ, guess what went away? Ignorance. You didn't learn Christ in ignorance. Because you have faith doesn't mean that you're you're stupid or, or that you're blind to the reality. It means that you understand more. Coming to Jesus in faith opens up a worldview that, well, I never had. Outside of Christ, before Christ, I didn't see the world like I do now. I didn't discern or understand things like I do now. You know, and it's almost like if you were playing Jeopardy and you just had every answer before they did, you know? That's what I feel like when I'm watching the news. Eight years ago, I'm going, Iran's going to have the nuclear bomb. Why are we waiting? They're going to they're have it. What are we waiting for? I feel like a little mini prophet sometimes. 
But you know what? It's not that I'm a little mini prophet. It's because ignorance has been removed. And we watch the news, or we read the papers, or we hear about things going on, and from the Christian worldview, from the perspective of Christ, with His Spirit in me, I'm seeing things. And I go, why doesn't everybody see this? It's because they have been darkened in their understanding. And again, what did Paul say? Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The true ignorance is being outside of Christ. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that sadly. And I would say to anybody, man, if you want to wise up, if you want to become sharp and discerning and clear thinking in this world, you need Jesus. Because that's what happens. When Christ comes into the human heart, the veil is removed. Human ignorance is swallowed up and replaced with the wisdom and the understanding that comes by the Spirit of the Lord. But that doesn't satisfy the Lord's holy appetite. He not only swallows up ignorance, He devours death. He will swallow up death for all time. And Paul refers to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, he says, When this perishable will have put on this imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up. God's going to swallow up death. Paul writes, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, God devours death. And it has no hold on you or on me anymore. Revelation 7.17 tells us, The Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's what Isaiah said, isn't it? He will wipe away all tears. When He swallows up death... Tears cease, crying, see, it's, it's unnecessary. Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Are you looking forward to the second things? Boy, I am. A world without stress, and a world without fear, and a world without tears, and a world without heartache. All gone. Because God has swallowed up ignorance and He has devoured death. Marvelous. Number five, God also wipes out rebellion. Now brace yourselves, this one's a little gross. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, verse 10. And Moab... Oh wait, did I skip a verse? I did, verse 9. Read verse 9 with me. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Remember, this is the remnant of Israel singing a song. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. I'm going to come back to that verse in a few minutes. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in His place. As straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. Okay, so get that picture of a watery manure pile. On a hot day... A little steam coming off. Okay, you with me? We, we walked out into the garage this morning, taking Naomi to school, and uh, for reasons I won't go into, all of our trash bags were stacked. We had like six trash bags stacked by the door to be put out in the trash you know, cans, and they should have been. But they weren't. Somebody's chores were forgotten. Anyway, so they're all sitting over there, and I opened the garage door, and this wall of stink. It was terrible. 
I have a feeling there were several uh, used pull-ups in there, but I'm not sure. So we walk in there, and we get in the car, and we're, we're starting to drive down the driveway, and Naomi, from the back, she hasn't said a word yet. She goes, Dad, I think we should call our garage the Garage of Stink. <laughs> I'm like, that's a good name, Naomi. We're going to call it that, the Garage of Stink. Well, that's what we're talking about, is the stinking pile of watery... I'm, I'm trying to be gross on purpose. Follow this through. It gets worse. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. Okay, now now you got a watery dung pit. Alright? And you got a guy... And he's swimming. It's not my word here, okay? God's word. <laughs> the Lord will lay low his pride... Together with the trickery of his hands, the unassailable fortifications of your walls, he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, even to the dust. Okay, what is this talking about? God wipes out rebellion. This is an absolutely disgusting picture, and Isaiah paints it this way on purpose. It should be gross. And you need to think about it as graphically as possible. Think about that watery dung pit, someone arms spread out, doing freestyle through the muck. As if they think, and and someone with a look on their face like they have no idea that they are swimming through manure. They think it's an Olympic pool. And they're swimming through this disgusting mire. Why is it so disgusting? Why this gross picture? Because that is God's view of rebellion. That's what people look like to the Father when they're in rebellion to Him, like they're swimming in stink. It's supposed to be gross. What's Moab got to do with this? Well, if you remember our study from Isaiah 15 and 16, and the burden against Moab, Moab's biggest problem, the focal point of Moab, it's, it's the sin, the sin of Moab will, will have the most weight. It will have the most holdouts at the very end of time. People sinning in the way that Moab sinned. Well, how did Moab sin? Chapter 16, verse 6 tells us, we have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride Even of his arrogance, pride, and fury, his idle boasts are false. Moab represents prideful rebellion. That was their big issue. And so now the people are singing and they're remembering the pride of Moab and that rebellious nature. And it looks like someone swimming in manure. That's the picture drawn for us. Four times... Toward the end of the book of Revelation, four times this blatant rebellion is described. In Revelation 9, verse 20, 9, verse 21, 16, verse 9, and 16, verse 11. And I'll read that one to you. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Rebellion stinks. Pride reeks. And we think we're so marvelous, you know? When we're prideful about something, when we're really proud of ourselves for doing something, we think, look at me, look at what I've accomplished. And we don't even know we are swimming in stink. When when people rebel against the Lord, I don't need God, I got it all right up here. Ignorant, ignorant, foolish, stupid rebellion, and you think you're an Olympic swimmer when you're just moving through the dung pit. God lays out this incredibly graphic picture. The pride and rebellion are the dung pits of the world. 
people floating around in it, luxuriating as if they were in a spa or something. Not realizing how sickening it is to the Lord. So just as He dealt with ancient Moab, the Lord will wipe out these holdouts who are wallowing in the manure of rebellious pride. Chapter 26. I feel like I need to wash up. In Isaiah verse tw- uh, chapter 26, we actually enter now the kingdom age. And the next song rocks gently back and forth between rejoicing praises on the one hand and prayerful reflections on the other hand of the redeemed people of Israel. Verse 1, chapter 26. In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. How do you know that, Isaiah? Because he's seeing it. He's hearing it. How amazing. We have a strong city, they sing. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful. You can read about the righteous nations in Matthew 25. They're the ones that are called the sheep. And the righteous nations are the ones who care about Israel. Again, Matthew 25. Verse 3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because He trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For He has brought low these who dwell on high, the unassailable city, again, probably Babylon. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it, the feet of the afflicted, and the steps of the helpless. So those who are afflicted by Babylon and helpless because of Babylon now are just walking over the top of Babylon as if it never existed. Well, as if it was never there. This is an amazing section. In fact, we're going to divide uh, chapter 26, and it won't take long. We're going to divide it into seven action statements that are sung in this song. Actions on the part of the redeemed. And the first part, the first thing they are doing here is they are looking at salvation. So number one, they're looking at salvation. Look back at verse one for a second. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. you got to see this. The word security in verse 1, is correctly and significantly trans, translated in the King James Version as salvation. So note that. If you're reading the NASB, security is salvation here. In fact, go back. Go back to verse 9 of chapter 25. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Same word. What salvation in verse 9 of chapter 25 and security, verse 1 of chapter 26, same word in the Hebrew, same Hebrew word for salvation. Salvation has always been the plan of the Lord. It's always been that that work of wonder, planned from long ago. Ever since, and I love how John Corson puts it, ever since the first Adam bombed out in the garden, he calls it the first Adam bomb. (laughs) Adam bombed out. Ever since that took place, God has sought to save mankind. Salvation has been the key that God has used, but it's not the result, gang. It's it's the key He's used to bring about a result. What is the result? Any guesses? What does God use salvation to show? His glory. His glory. I brought this up before. I will bring this up again, I'm sure. The purpose of creation, the purpose of mankind, the purpose of everything that God has done through history is not our salvation, it is His glory. 
Salvation is a key to that. Salvation reveals His glory. Salvation is God taking steps to show not only mankind, but angels and all eternal beings to show His glory through the work of salvation. But uh, salvation is not the issue. And the difference is, salvation being the issue would be a man-centered faith. Glory being the issue is a God-centered faith. And that's what we want. A faith that's centered around the Lord, not centered around ourselves. So He uses salvation. It's It's a vitally important understanding here. He sought to save mankind from the mess, beginning with Adam, coming all the way up to us now. And what's interesting, and the reason I point this out, Israel is the one singing. Israel has been the picture of how God has shown His saving of a people. And when the kingdom begins and those people are singing, people will recognize the faithfulness of the salvation of God, not just with individuals as in the church, but with a people. He said, I'm going to save them. And He will prove Himself to be faithful to that. Looking at salvation, the Hebrew word for salvation here, used also in verse 9, used right here, it's used 353 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay, so that's significant. Not even including the New Testament, the word salvation, 353 times. It always connotes deliverance, or saving, or helping, or security. And it is always God doing something, well, 98% 98% of the time is God doing something to save a people. There are a couple times the words used where someone delivers someone or someone saves someone out of a situation or helps someone. But it's primarily used of God stepping in and saving His people Israel. God's salvation. In fact, we see it in Exodus 40, verse 30, at the Red Sea. Thus the Lord saved Israel. Here's the word for salvation. He saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. Blessed are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. Same word that we see here for security. Salvation. A people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies will cringe before you, and you will tread upon their high places. But again, the ultimate point of salvation is to testify to and to witness to the glory of God. Psalm 106, verse 7, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, He saved them. Why? For the sake of His name, that He might make His power known. That's why He saves And Paul puts it even better. In fact, you might want to jot this down and go back and look at these verses. Romans 9, verses 22 and 23. In Romans 9, 10 and 11, Paul is talking about God's work with Israel. And here in Romans 9, 22, he says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He did so, listen, He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. God is the glorious wall of security. His salvation is all the security fence Israel will ever need. But gang, salvation is not a concept. Salvation is a person. The Hebrew word for security in verse 1, the Hebrew word for salvation in verse 9 of chapter 25 is Yeshua. 353 times the word salvation is used in the Hebrew Scriptures. Every time you see the word salvation, gang, it is Jesus. 
It is Yeshua. Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Salvation. In essence, that's what the angel told Mary. You shall call His name Yeshua, the Hebrew word for salvation, for He will save His people from their sin. Yeshua is salvation. Jesus is salvation. I mean, it, how explicit does God have to be to get our attention? You know that His own Son would be named what He's doing to show His glory in the world. Yeshua. 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come. And He's given us understanding so we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is salvation. So they're looking to salvation. They're looking at salvation, which means in essence they're looking at Jesus. Verse 7 going on. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently as the remnant of Israel continues to sing. This part of the song beautifully describes someone who is, secondly, not only looking at salvation, but loving His appearing. The people of Israel are singing, we just we longed to see you, and when we did, oh, it's marvelous. And even now we're thinking about you and we're, we're loving your appearing. Remember Paul in his last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.8 said, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's, see, I want that to define my life. I really do. I want to be one of those who loves his appearing. You know, Rick, you're talking about Jesus coming again this morning? Oh, yeah. Why? Because I love His appearing. And that's what's going on as they're singing. They're just loving His appearing. They're waiting eagerly, longing for Him, seeking diligently His name, even His memory, the desire of their souls, loving His appearing. Continuing on, At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn Righteousness. That is key. That's significant. Let me read that again. When the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. There's a principle here. Number three, learning righteousness. The people are singing about learning righteousness. But here's the principle. And, and, and stay with me a second here. Grace doesn't teach righteousness. Grace doesn't teach righteousness. Judgment, punishment, teaches righteousness. Listen to what he said again. The earth experiences your judgments. When that happens, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. That's how they learn. When the wicked is shown favor, verse 10, he does not learn righteousness. Grace doesn't teach righteousness. Judgment does. Discipline does. Punishment teaches us to discern, to understand between right and wrong. What, what would happen if with my children, you know, I use the, the candy dish on the, on the counter example on Sunday. What if I put that bowl of candy on the counter and I told my kids, now, don't eat that, but if you do, it's okay. It's all right, you know. 
If, if half that candy's gone when I come back in the room, I love you anyway. Would they learn? Of course not. It's punishment. If I come back in and half the candy's gone, whack! I like that, kind of holstering the hand, you know. Whack! Punishment teaches righteousness. It teaches what's right and wrong. Grace doesn't do that. The Lord does make judgments. And, gang, He does use punishment to correct us. And we should, we should re- receive that from Him. We should thank Him for it. When we do stupid things, when we make, we make sin choices and we get busted for it or life goes south because we did something wrong, the first thing out of our mouths ought to be, thank you, Lord, for the punishment. Now I get it. Now I understand how foolish I was. Thank you, Lord. Punishment teaches it, not grace. We need grace. (laughs) We receive grace unto salvation, but we receive judgment unto righteousness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, Hebrews 12.11, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness, which is why sometimes a person has to come to the end of themselves before they can receive grace. Parents of grown children who are not following the Lord, listen. Sometimes they need to come to the end of themselves before they can receive grace. You can talk to them about grace all you want, and you should. And you can say you're praying for them and that Jesus loves them, and you should. But understand that those kids have to come to a point where they need Jesus. They have to come to a point where their own stupid choices hurt and are not working. Like the prodigal eating with the pigs, they got to come to the end of themselves. And so what I would encourage, and this is what I pray, when I'm seeing sin situations going on among my kids, what I pray is, Lord... Lord, may they experience the punishment that their own sin is asking for. I want that for me. I want to be course corrected by the righteousness of God. And so we pray that there would be grace, but that it would come after the realization that we need grace. Verse 10, they do not perceive the majesty of the Lord. Talking about the wicked who's shown favor and they don't learn righteousness, they deal unjustly in the land of uprightness, and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. And it's interesting the language here. Isaiah is using language that in the in the Hebrew indicates frustration. The does not perceive, the word not there, uh, I'm trying to remember what the word is. I think it's ball in, in the Hebrew, but but the word indicates, you know, it's it's frustrated. He doesn't get it. He just doesn't get it. And Isaiah cares. Once again, Isaiah cares for the lost. He cares for the unrighteous. He cares for the person who is missing it. So much so that when he writes this, he's going, frustrated. (laughs) And being a parent, I get that. I'm so frustrated. Why don't you understand? That's part of the reason that God began to work through Israel so that the rest of the world could learn righteousness. He dealt with Israel. He struck Israel. He punished Israel. He disciplined Israel. And we learn from that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us we learn from that. As we watch God doing it over time. And He did that to teach righteousness. Verse 11. O Lord, Your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. 
They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies, your people, Israel. You wonder why people get frustrated with Israel? They see God's zeal for Israel and they don't get it. They see God (laughs) protecting Israel and it's frustrating. You know, why are these people still here? Why do they get all the Nobel Prizes? How come they get all the awards? Why are they in entertainment? Why are they in the banks? Why are they so, you know, talented? (laughs) And they are. God is working with a people. God has zeal for His people, and the world sees that, and the result is anti-Semitism. And what the world sees at the end is God fulfilling everything for His people, Israel, that He said He would fulfill, and it shames those who are in opposition. Worse, it will flame them Fire will devour your enemies. Indeed, the Hebrew writer says our God is a consuming fire. Verse 12 going on, Lord, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed for us all our works. O Lord our God, other masters besides you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. Now gang, listen. This is future Israel again singing. And they express in the song the single greatest key to living in peace. That's number four. Living in peace. They sing about living in peace. Look at verse 12 again. Listen to verse 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us since you also performed for us all our works. Who performs the works of God? God does. Which is why we need the Holy Spirit. God performs the work of God. So if you want to do the work of... Well, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. You want to do the work of God? Believe in Jesus. Beyond that, you want to continue to do the work of God? Jesus says, I will build My church. It's believing Him to work in me and through me, to work in you and through you, to work in us and through us, He will do the work. Now, note the connection. That's where the peace is. If we try to do the work, the peace goes out the window. If we try to work the works of God, if we are works-based righteousness, if we are trying to do all the right things and do it all the right way, and if we're trying to plan for this church to grow and and be amazing and and trying to, to build the kingdom in the world and putting our noses to the grindstone, we will not have peace. You want peace? Believe in Jesus. You want peace? You ask His Spirit to work through you. You invite Him to be the power and not you. Revelation 19.8. I love this. You've heard this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Alright. How do we do that? It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. But notice this. The righteous acts of the saints, which are the fine linen, was given to them. It wasn't woven by them. It wasn't purchased by them. It wasn't that the saints went out and did all these great things and that became our righteous linens. No. Our righteousness gang was given to us as the Lord works through us. It's Him at work. And until we walk by His power, gang, we're not going to have peace. Verse 14. So living in peace. The dead will not live. 
The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. Number five, if you're jotting these down, leaving death in the dust. So now they're singing about leaving death in the dust. The idea here is the enemies of Israel will not rise again to oppress them. Babylon is waylaid. All of the surrounding nations that went against Israel, gone. They will not be a threat to Israel anymore. Leaving death in the dust. In the meantime, as the kingdom begins, now the boundaries of Israel begin to spread out as number six, lengthening the land. They sing about lengthening the land. Verse 15. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them, speaking of Israel. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus we were before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. So when it came time to give birth, there was no child. There was nothing there. There was no, no response, no reaction. We were pregnant. We writhed. We could not accomplish, latter, latter part of verse 18, we couldn't note this, we could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. And that, we ought to sing that as a church. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth. We should sing that. But wait, isn't that kind of anti-evangelistic? No. We can't accomplish deliverance game. Only God can do that. Which is why we point people to Jesus Christ. It's why we invite Jesus' Spirit to be at work in us and through us because we can't do it. This is not of our power. We cannot accomplish deliverance. And Israel recognizes that. Israel, Isaiah will tell us in a later place, Israel was originally called to be the light of the world. And they didn't do it. They couldn't. They tried. Tried to hold up the law. Oh, and it got too heavy. They couldn't do it. The people sing and they realize their inability to bring about their own deliverance or the deliverance of the world. In fact, Israel would watch dreadfully as their own numbers would shrink. Zechariah 13 tells us that only that one third will make it through the tribulation. In this context, gang, of these few verses here, as the land is being lengthened, Israel watches the Lord restore all the land that He promised to Abraham. Now this will be a marvelous moment. Because remember, Bible students, Israel has never attained to all the land promised. They have only at their height had 10% of what God said, Abraham, I'm giving you. 30,000 square miles as opposed to 300,000 square miles. And right now, while the world is trying to press in and shorten and, and the, the, the boundaries of Israel, Isaiah says God's going to open them wide up. They're going to have a lot more land in that millennial kingdom. The land is lengthened. And so they're singing, realizing God alone. God alone could pull this off. Now watch this. We're almost done, but watch this. They were given a sign. A sign of God's faithfulness at Jesus' first coming. But they missed it. There was something that happened that should have been drawing them all back at least to the next verse, verse 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn. And the earth will give birth to depart to the departed spirits. 
which is what I would call leaving death in the dust part two. The grave is left as the dead rise and walk. And it happened. Do you remember this? Matthew 27, 52. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Tombs were opened up. The dead people were walking around. And these saints gang were not the church. Think about this. These were Jewish believers in God who had died in faith. And so God gave them a little gift. I'm going to restore you to life. You're going to come out of your tombs. You're going to go back into Jerusalem and have some fun freaking people out. <laughs> and they did. They were. these, these Jew- Now think this through with me. These Jewish believers were a, a picture, a type of what will happen to all of the Jewish faithful at the outset of the Millennial Kingdom resurrection. These Jewish believers, those who died in faith in God before the crucifixion, Trusting Him, like Abraham, it was credited to Him as righteousness, right? Jesus hadn't died yet, so all those who died up to that point, they will rise glorified, and they will enter into the Millennial Kingdom. They are not the raptured church. The raptured church are those who die in Christ, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, 18. The dead in Christ will rise. These are those who died prior to Christ. Now, please understand, that could include Jewish believers, and maybe the rapture is all those who have died in faith over history, we all go up. But my understanding is that the rapture is for the church, the bride of Christ. Those who died in faith, Jewish believers are not the bride of Christ, they're the wife of God. And the Bible makes a distinction there. So, and I've been asked this question, so what about all those Jewish believers? What happens to them? The church is raptured. But Isaiah says, your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy, your dew is as the dew of the dawn, the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Speaking of that moment at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, your dead will rise. Who's dead? Israel's dead. And so at that time, there's a mass resurrection of the Jewish faithful who now enter into the promised millennial kingdom. Now, I think that's what is being said here. You may want to study that or think it through yourself, but I know it makes some sense about what Ezekiel says about David. What does Ezekiel say about David? Ezekiel 34, verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. There are those who say, well, that's just a kind of a messianic allegory. It's not what he says. He says, my servant David's going to be a prince. I think David's going to be vice president to Jesus' royal throne. Jesus is king. David's his viceroy. You know, he's, he's there with him, right hand guy, which I think would be really cool. Ezekiel 37.25. He repeats it just for any of us who missed it. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. Well, how will they be able to do that if they haven't been resurrected? See? They resurrected to live on that land. And David my servant will be their prince forever. So, verse 19, we got a little snapshot. We got a taste of it. 
The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, the dead rose too. It was like the resurrection of Jesus was so powerful that it spills out. They rise, they walk in, it's a snapshot of picture. The big deal will happen at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. Now the last two verses here are intriguing to me, and I can't say absolutely, but they may possibly very well be a prophetic double entendre. Two meanings here. And I would call this lifting up the faithful. Lifting up the faithful. We know, gang, that the Lord is going to hide the remnant of Israel in a place prepared in the wilderness, right? Read this. Come, my people. Enter into your rooms. Close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Isaiah 16 talks about Selah, that place in the wilderness. And perhaps, verses 20 and 21 is referring specifically to Israel hiding out in the wilderness. But gang, I personally think this is a hint of the rapture as well. Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you. Hide. Hide for a little while. Until my indignation runs its course. And I believe that that hints at the rapture because we have a place prepared, right? Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Kind of makes you want to sing, doesn't it? Let's do that. Let's stand up.